in this time when the world has stood still, we've been too busy to really look at this thing. The death of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Tamir Rice. It's been happening, right? But now George Floyd happened right when we were all standing still for eight minutes and 46 seconds. Now we're looking at the health disparities with COVID, how black and brown people and indigenous are, are being affected more so than anyone. We've got to do better. You've tuned in to How It Looks From Here, Life in the Time of COVID. I'm Mary Claire. This morning, I get to be in conversation with my dear friend, Michelle Browder. Michelle is in Montgomery, Alabama, and I'm here in Montana. Hey, Michelle, good morning. Good morning. Since this podcast is called How It Looks From Here, tell me what you see from where you're sitting right now. I see clothes. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> right, because we're on Zoom and I'm in my closet. You know what else, though? I see something really beautiful right behind you. Is that your art? Yes, that is a mural uh, that we did on behalf of Anarchalusian Betsy. And so we're trying to elevate their voices versus tearing down monuments and memorials. We don't want to focus and turn our energy to that. We would much like to pour our energy, time, and effort into erecting the mothers of gynecology, women that were experimented on by James Marion Sims. So that is just one way through art um, to elevate their voices. Okay, so Anarka, Lucy, and Betsy... Can you speak a little more about the names of these women and what you really want people to know about them? Yeah, so Anarcha, Lucy, and Betsy, they were, well, first of all, they were enslaved and they were used as subjects by a doctor who has this claim of fame that has recently now been debunked by a gentleman by the name of J.C. Hallman, who has done a, a research on not just the doctor, but on the enslaved African women. Uh, but these women, they were from Alabama. And Anarka, in particular, was from Montgomery, Alabama, the Westcottsville Plantation. And so uh, when I first started giving tours, I wanted to do research on, you know, just the iconography and the monuments that are here just dedicated in honor of the Confederacy. And so as I dug a little deeper, I found that a lot of these icons or these um men where they were treacherous you know they were they did heinous crimes against humanity and enslaved people and women and so i wanted to elevate their voices the women's voices to make sure that uh you know people when they visit montgomery that they know that this is not okay that these are not people that we should revere but we should be repulsed by you know and so uh, in those studies i found that these three women anarcha again in particular uh was experimented on with um she had vaginal fistulas and um, she was 17, actually she was 16 at the time when she got pregnant and then at the age of 17 is when she had her first operation. And this doctor is like revered in Alabama. He's not only in Alabama, but around the country in New York and Paris. And, and so there are statues in his honor. Um, and I think in Central Park, they just recently took him down. But, you know, we want to 
just give a, a, a different narrative. We want to tell the truth about our history as it relates to how enslaved um, women were treated and then also thank them for the, the resiliency, how they fought through all of this. Um, and so basically that's what we're trying to do. So hence the art in honor of Anarcha Lucy and Betsy. You know, Michelle, in the years since we met in 2008, it seems to me that you've had a number of teams and that your work across all of them is essentially about restoring and really reclaiming community health by drawing on people's strengths of body and mind and spirit. You do it as an artist, as a historian, and as a tour guide, and as a leader of youth through your organization, I Am More Than. And opening your family horse farm to the community for its therapeutic effects. Those are just a few of the things that you're doing. And so I'm wondering, here in COVID, how are you seeing the power of these projects help people through the pandemic? Personally, with my tours, tourism is what drives my business. So now there's no tourism, right? So there's a biblical scripture that says, you know, Jesus was in the boat with the disciples and they were fishing. And he said, take your net up and pull it over on the other side because they weren't getting anything. The, the nets were empty. So I kind of used that ideology to say during COVID, the fish aren't here. They're not feeding there. I can't get anything. So I had to pull the net and toss it to the other side and find fish and, you know, find um, and, and do virtual tours, right? Which uh -huh. is now the best thing that has ever happened to my business because everybody's in, staying at home. And now, you know, you could t I've had more people take my tours virtually than I was on the other side of the boat. So um, so same thing with, with COVID and dealing with um, depression and anxiety. It was like either we stay here and not go outside, not commune with nature, vitamin D deficient, or you go out and you commune with the animals and find a way to get through this. We have seven horses and I, I didn't get a chance to really commune with them or spend time with them because I was always busy. So during COVID, I was like, I'm not staying outside. I'm going out here to talk to the horses. And it was therapeutic. You know, and so I thought, wow, the, the country, not the country, but my community needs this. And so what have you seen? Yeah, well, we have seen people who just needed time and space with their family. Their families had been cooped up for months. We've seen people suffering from depression, military service, men and women, you name it. We've seen a, a wide range of folks who just need to breathe you know, and just need to get their minds together and just commune with nature. And so we're, we're seeing the suicide rate go down. We're seeing people are just needing to have a conversation. My sister walks around with people, you know, on, on top of the horses and they talk. And when they get down, they're like, oh my God, I feel so much better. You know, it's just, so we're seeing healing um, even during this time of COVID, we're isolated. We can't have conversation or be in each other's um, presence. And man is not meant to be an island. So to isolate folks without having human contact has been devastating. But we're seeing people, you know, perk up and have a new zeal for life. I'm a brander. So it's like, okay, so how can we cast a net on the other side? What else do you have in your business that we can glean from to help you stay afloat? And it's working. And so you call your horse farm 
more than a horse farm, which is actually quite brilliant branding to associate it with your nonprofit, I Am More Than. And that youth organization has been going on for almost 10 years now. Where did that first idea come from? So the whole I Am More Than uh, came from, I am a follower of Brian Stevenson. The work that he has done here in Montgomery. So this is before TED Talk. You know, I started doing my research on just the work that they, Brian Stevenson and his team have been doing here as it relates to uh, mass incarceration and now is transitioned into racial justice. And one of the things that he says, it's a quote that he would say all the time, is that we are all more than the worst thing that we've ever done. And I'm like, hmm that resonates with me. And so we started I Am More Than, and I organized a trip to the United States Supreme Court to watch Brian Stevenson argue a case, uh, Evan Miller versus Alabama, which was challenging the constitutionality of sending a 13-year-old to die in prison or to, you know, to prison at the age of 13 and 14. And so my students were those 56 kids and we went there to the United States Supreme Court to watch him. And from there on, their lives were changed, like instantly. You know, number one, to see a black man argue a case. Uh, number two, the content, the, you know, of what was happening, which was this 13-year-old that had killed uh, someone here in Alabama. And, you know, actions, consequences, you know, the, the students. But then to actually watch them engage and watch how they were so in tune with you know, Justice Scalia at the time, uh, rest his soul, and Justice Roberts and how they started arguing the case for this brilliant attorney. So my students came back, they were like, listen, we need more of this. <laughs> and so that's where it came from. I am more than. And so from uh, that happened in June of 2012, but we started I am more than in 2011. And so it just kind of grew. And we, we don't have a lot of grants. We don't do funding like in that term. So what we started doing was giving tours we you know got a clubhouse and people started coming and hosting events there my students would be the waiters and servers and then from there it grew into a tour opportunity over the years you've spoken about the collective power of children and youth as a sleeping giant and it seems like the mission of i am more than and so much of your work is to wake this giant to its potential how has that shown up during these times of COVID? Well, my students, you know, I'm not able to really spend a whole lot of time with them right now because of COVID. Um, but for those who work with me, I have some that work on the tours with me or work in the business with me. Uh, and it's just interesting how, you know, they're, these kids are suffering. The anxiety level is great. So what we'll do is we'll try to, you know, connect through Zoom. Just let them talk it out, like what's going on, you know, how's your family? Some of them are hungry. Some of them, you know, they're not used to seeing their friends. We had one that committed suicide, um, you know, and so it's 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 pretty hard for them. But all you could do is just be that listening ear and then invite them out to the farm. So we've had them to come out and bring their families, schedule some time for them just to ride, talk, and, and find themselves. And now we have two that actually come back and they work as volunteers cleaning out the stalls. And, you know, it's like their recreation time. So, yeah, that's what we're seeing. We're, we're seeing a longing. And then, of course, the hunger. You know, a lot of those kids would you find their meals at school. And so, you know, now we're, uh, instead of giving or, you know, having these food drives once a week, it's now every day. 
this work that you do, this service to your community and devotion to freedom is written into the history of your family going way back in time. I know your parents are still powerhouses in Montgomery. And I've heard you mention recently an ancestor named Aurelia Browder, perhaps a, an overlooked civil rights icon. Can you introduce our listeners to Ms. Browder? Yes, and this is great because it's coming up on the 65th anniversary of the Montgomery bus boycott. And everyone, when you think of a boycott on a bus, you initially think of Rosa Parks. But there were so many other women and the boycotts and the movement was really fueled by women. Okay, Dr. King was just pushed up as the face of it. But behind the scenes, it was women that were calling the shots. Um, And so Aurelia Browder was one of those women who her first arrest was in 1948 um, from refusing to give up a seat to a a white passenger and his wife. And so they arrested her and she continued to be outspoken and uh, vigilant about, you know, just being treated civilly, you know, just being civil had to be legislated. And so she fought for that. And um, and so basically the lead case, she was a lead plaintiff in Browder versus Gale which essentially ended um, segregation on the buses and the Montgomery bus boycott. And when you go, it's so funny because they said that she didn't have the temperament, like Rosa Parks, she had the look, she didn't have children, you know, she had all of the qualifications to be deemed the mother of the civil rights movement, but there was Joanne Robinson. She was the true advocate behind uh, the boycott. I called every person who was in every school and every place where we had planned to be at that, have somebody at that school or wherever it was at a certain time, that I would be there with materials for them to disseminate. I didn't go to bed that night. I cut those stencils. I ran off 35,000 copies. And then Aurelia Browder, she was arrested over five times. But the, one of the criteria is that E.D. Nixon, who was one of the Montgomery Improvement Association, he was one of the organizers. And he basically said, well, we need someone that looks the part, you know, because Browder, Aurelia, she's too bootstrappy, too headstrong. But yet she was an entrepreneur. She had several cars. She had like six cars that she would lease out to the cab companies. So she was a driving force, one of them behind the Montgomery bus boycott or for the carpool. So if you needed a ride to work. You know, you would go to a specific space, the Harris Pharmacy, and find a way to work. But you were in Aurelia Browder's car. So she's a major civil rights icon that nobody really knows about. This is Mary Claire and How It Looks From Here. Stay with us. We'll be back after this brief break. And so together with Anarka, Lucy, and Betsy, you're bringing forward these stories that map directly onto the legacy of perseverance and clarity of black women. Wow, that's something this country really benefits from. You also just mentioned your mother and father and how they haven't backed down from the Jim Crow era to the era of COVID-19. Describe a little bit more about their work. 
Yeah, I think we were talking mainly about if my parents slowed down any, because my mother just turned 80. My father is 79. And here, my siblings and I, we're like, okay, now you got to wear your mask. We don't go inside the house. They were like, what are y'all doing? You need to come in here and say hello to us. Give us a hug. Give us a kiss. whatnot. And they're, um, they're just, I don't know. These, they're superheroes to me because they have not slowed down. As a matter of fact, they're even more busy than when they were just, you know, doing their day to day. My mother opened up a home for veterans, for women, veterans who are homeless um, and my father has continued to serve meals and over a thousand, anywhere between 800 and a thousand people a day. I'm talking about every day since COVID, since the shutdown. And so my father was like, well, listen, Jim Crow didn't kill us. So we're not going to let COVID do it either. And I'm like, okay, that's just one way to think of it. But you know, they're being safe. They're, they wear their masks, but they're just that spirit of resilience. You know, they're just pressing through it. You know, and my mother said, I'm going to die doing what I love. If it, if it comes to that, um, she said, but it's not going to come to that. She was like, I remember having the flu and everybody told us to get the flu shot. Remember this? Uh, and so um, she said, the flu didn't kill me. And, you know, this is not going to to hinder us from doing God's work. Your mother pressing through it, as you say, seems to me to be a mark of deep resilience. And we know that we learn from the people we watch. How do you see that lesson coming through in your life? And how do you pass it on that deep resilience to the children that you work with? It's funny that you should mention that because I have a student now who has been with me since she was 16 um, as a mentor. I mentor these kids and she's 25 now. And when she came back to Montgomery, immediately she called me. She's like, I'm lost and I need, I need you to help me, I, you know? And so we have an Airbnb. So she's now staying over there. She's working with me in tour operations and everything. And so I'm seeing that, you know, these kids, they, they need the strength of my ancestors and I need my ancestors, like my mother and father, even though they're not deceased, I still consider, you know, them to be ancestors because you can't really become an ancestor until you're, you're gone. But these living legends, and to watch how, you know, even through Jim Crow, how, you know, the black community continued to get up, even though they were pushed down and told that they could not do certain things, they still push back no matter how many crosses you burn in the yard. And so my father gets that from, you know, he's part of that era. And so I watch them and their work and I try to emulate that in my work to, you know, cause I've had my challenges here in Montgomery, Alabama. We've had the sons of the Confederacy to tell me you can't own a business and then try to destroy it. You know, and we've had um, just all kinds of obstacles, but I've seen what my parents do and how they don't allow, um, you know, those forces to stop them. And so therefore I feel like it's my duty to continue, you know, that legacy. And then I try to instill it in young people. So when that young lady came and said, I, I'm lost, I need help. It, it's my duty to do that, to pass that resiliency on to her. And so, um, so yeah, that's, that's the way I kind of look at it right now with my students, you know, because they're being challenged. This is something we've never had to live through a pandemic, but these kids are like, I'm about to lose my mind over here, you know? <laughs> and this, that's a whole new, I have my one student, he's 18 and their whole lives, you know, I remember prom. I don't know if you did prom, but these students, they're not, just basic things that we've taken for granted in our childhood and growing up, they've been cut off. So, you know, you have to tell them, find the joy even in that. 
you know, find there's got to be, this is a one-time experience. We've never experienced it, but you have something that a lot of us don't have now. You've lived through COVID, you know, so we try to, you know, try to be uplifting and inspire them to just find the beauty, even in all of the ugliness, you know? Well, and you're an artist. You bring improvisation and vision, and I'd even say daring into your work with human communities and telling the truth about history, and you do it through your art. As a visual artist, you just finished a commission with the Southern Poverty Law Center for three enormous billboards that they will spread around Georgia. I wonder, would you say how you've been able to involve your students in your art? Two of my students, I hired two of my students to work with me because they need money, you know? <laughs> so I'm not, I was like, I'm not going to just work you for free. But, um, and so just to be outside and just to be able to do something that was uplifting for community, they were amazed. They were, I don't know, they felt energized by that. And so now with these billboards, uh, I was commissioned. This is a beautiful story. You'll appreciate this because, you know, we're trying to, erect this monument in honor of Anarcha, Lucy and Betsy. And so um, there was an artist call that went out from Southern Poverty Law Center. And they were like, hey, listen, we need three billboards uh, for the runoff election. It's gonna, they're going to run all the way up to January 5th. And she's like, would you like to take a stab at it? So I'm like, yeah, it was myself and another artist. And so uh, the other artist was busy doing something. And so I managed to get the contract. And she says, oh, by the way, there's a $10,500 <laughs> bonus in it for you. So I was like, I, I had no clue. And, you know, as an artist, you just, sometimes we don't think about those things for the enthusiasm and the exposure, but yeah. So, um, but yeah, so I designed it and one of my students put it together and we managed to put out some beautiful pieces. One of the things I saw on your social media recently that struck me powerfully was the art class that you had out on the farm this was with young artists, and you had them drawing birds. Could you tell us what was happening with that? So in the midst of COVID, <laughs> we decided to have a summer camp, even though, we, you know, you're not supposed to. But we only had 10 students. No, we had eight students, I think. And um, so the birds it signifies freedom and life and nature. And in the, where the horse farm is, there's, a lot of trees there and you can hear the birds all day just whistling singing and going about their bit mainly cardinals and so we created a, a bird sanctuary so that if you just needed to come sit out and be still you could sit out with your binoculars and watch these birds and so it was just really cool and it, the kids just so thoroughly enjoyed it so all of those birds there's now a tree with those painted birds on them and as you look over the sanctuary, you see these birds hidden in the trees. You have to look real closely and then you'll see uh, these painted birds. But yeah, it's just a form of therapy. Wasn't this around the time in May of this year when Christian Cooper was threatened in Central Park? A black man out bird watching, and he respectfully asked a white woman to leash her dog, but her response was to call the police on him. Was your workshop connected to that incident at all? Yeah, that was the main motivation. Uh, we tried to tie it into where we are today. And who, 
Black kids especially didn't talk about bird watching until Karen met them in the sanctuary there. And so now it's become a phenomenon. And even myself, I had no clue how, you know, calming it is. And then to watch these little personalities and this nature around us that seems to have this intellect that surpasses us sometimes, um, that whole nother world. It was just really interesting and the kids really enjoyed it, but then tied it into uh, the stereotypes. Because one of the things that we want to do is dismantle stereotypes and generalizations. And, and so, especially with black children, it's, you know, black kids don't, don't bird watch. Well, now they do because this gentleman brought this whole other angle to it and now it's it's calming it's soothing it's therapeutic and um and so yeah so we're kind of grateful for those instances because we found beauty in it even though it was an ugly situation the beauty now is that okay so if i'm bored i can go grab some binoculars sit in quiet in stillness and watch birds at the same time much like what you've said about anarcha lucy and betsy you are living and the children are watching rather than tearing down and destroying and getting stuck in criticism that arises from identity as a victim you say there's some stories that you haven't been told and we're going to teach through public art in the same way christian cooper dropped all the charges he said you know we need to stop this And that's what the students are seeing in that story. They're given bird watching, but they're also given a measure of wisdom or a way to stop for a minute in dignity. How would you say it? I think it's a measure of grace and mercy. Because if that was me, I'm not dropping charges. You see what I'm saying? Your intent was to kill me by calling the police, death by by cop. So she knew exactly what she was doing. But for this gentleman to have grace and mercy towards her. But when does that stop? When do when are black people vindicated and supported by not always having to be the one to forgive? You know, that's what the whole civil rights movement. We're going to love our neighbor, even though they're beating you to death and burning crosses in your yard and killing you and lynching you. We're going to love you anyway. At what point? So my students, we've talked about that because they were like, "This is we're not the generation of Dr. King. And there's a song, there's a song that a, a rapper recently put out called Try Jesus, Don't Try Me. Because I throw hands. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So it's like, you know, this is a different generation. So I think that he's kind of um, brought that type of uh, response into a generation that knows nothing of withstanding the evil of the Jim Crow days. You know what I'm saying? So he kind of gave us another way to look at it in today's time versus Dr. King's time. So that was grace and mercy. Yeah, what a balance. Staying in dignity and wisdom and grace and mercy and a fierce resistance to the dehumanizing of anyone. Yes, yes. Thank you so much, Michelle. Yes. You know, I have one... Last question before we go. Drawing on your enormous wisdom and compassion and fervor, what would you say right now? What would you offer as advice for how to move forward from here through COVID and whatever else is on the horizon? So when you say move on from here through COVID, we're seeing in this time when the world has stood still, we're all standing still, 
and we're grappling with or all of these emotions are now starting to stir up or, you know, we've been too busy to really look at this thing. The death of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Tamir Rice, it's been happening, right? But now George Floyd happened right when we were all standing still, right? For eight minutes and 46 seconds. Now we're looking at the health disparities with COVID. How black people are dis black and brown people and, and indigenous are, are being affected more so than anyone. We've got to do better. Going back to the days of Jim Crow and the message of Dr. King and the spirit of love, it does take that. But also you have to, I'll, I'll give you an analogy. Montgomery, Alabama is like Oz. Right now the world is coming to Oz. They're coming, you know, to see the wizard or, you know, whatever, this National Memorial for Peace and Justice. But along the way, there's someone that's coming here that doesn't have a heart. There's someone that's coming here that doesn't have a, a brain or the mind to even look at this thing differently um, in terms of racial justice and community. And there's someone that's coming here that's afraid. So on your journey, to the National Memorial or on your journey to the reckoning of, of what's happening with this racial justice, uh, there's a, another experience, you know, through COVID. And so my thing would be to say, look at this history, look at where we are through a different lens. Try to put yourself in the place of the other person or people of color. You had mentioned earlier about Black women, how we are the driving force of this democracy and making sure that all people are being treated fairly. I would just say, have that experience, whether it's through a tour or having a conversation with someone or just listening to what you're, you're putting out on your podcast, you know, open up your heart. Cause at the end of the road, the yellow brick road, you'll have a heart, you'll have the mind and the wisdom and the courage to confront all of these things that have led you to this journey to Oz or to my, you know what I mean? And I, Oz could even be um, the, the conversations, these tough conversations now that we're having to have with our friends and family about um, healthcare disparities and access to healthcare. You know, 45 talked about how, oh, I'm, I'm immune and I got well in three days, but we don't have the healthcare that you have you know, or that the Congress has. We don't have access to that. So shouldn't we be having some serious conversations that hopefully will lead to not just the truth of it, but some actions and how we treat and love our neighbor? Well, I thank you. Thank you for being a friend. Oh, my goodness. My absolute joy and privilege. Hey, and one more thing. I just heard about this today. Tell me about your podcast. So the podcast... The Club from Nowhere, that's what it's called. And it's actually called that in honor of Georgia Gilmore, another civil rights heroine who would serve Dr. King food. <laughs> she was his personal cook. And she, you know, cooked for the whole civil rights and the, the whole civil rights leaders. And then she would also sell plates. And she raised a lot of money with her culinary art skills. And so she, um, so we call this place the, the Club from Nowhere, but that's the name of, that's the title of our podcast. Michelle Browder, how can people learn more about your work? So what they can do is there's anarchalucybetsy.org. 
and the proceeds from that particular virtual tour will go to benefit or go into the um to benefit the erection of Anarchalusian Betsy the monument. So they can just go to the website and forward slash tour at the end of your dot org and it should come up. That's A N A R C H A L U C Y B E T S E Y dot O R G. We'll also put that in our show notes. The other voice you heard today came from archival audio of Joanne Robinson, a civil rights activist and participant in the Montgomery bus boycotts. This audio clip was used with permission. You've been listening to How It Looks From Here, an educational collaboration between Full Ecology and the System Zoo. How It Looks From Here was created and produced by me, Mary Claire, and Joe LaVisca. Editing by Joe and Doug LaVisca. Music by Cedar Mathers Wynn and Gary Ferguson. You can find us on social media and at www.fullecology.com. Support for this podcast comes from our listeners, like you.